Good evening, One Church. How you guys doing? <clears throat> the resurrecting king is resurrecting me. I hope those words speak to you and speak life over you because today, as we continue our series that we've been really talking about over the past three or four weeks at OneChurch.tv, we've been talking about a hill to die on. And we've been talking about what is the core beliefs, what is the essence of Christianity. And today, we talk, we're actually getting to the hill to die on. We are getting to the core and the essence of what you have to believe in order for you to come to faith in Jesus. So I'm so glad you're here tonight. Um, this is going to be a special night as we continue to worship. We're going to have communion in a little bit. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you guys about uh, this hill to die on, the essence of Christianity. And what we've been doing is asking this question, and it's going to be up on the screens, is this. What is essential, what is essential to believe in order to come to faith in Jesus Christ? What is essential? And tonight and Sunday morning, we're going to be looking at the core of what that looks like. We're going to be, over the weekend, we're going to be looking at the essentials in order to believe, in order to become the faith in Jesus Christ. And what we're going to do over today and this Sunday is we're going to be looking at one passage of Scripture. And to be honest with you, it's probably a passage of Scripture you've probably not read. You know, normally on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we usually read out of the Gospels. We, in the Gospels that we're going to, again, discover tonight is, well, it literally means good news. It's the Gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Two were eyewitnesses, and there and befriended Jesus. And two, uh, Mark and Luke actually uh, asked questions and investigated, and they wrote the accounts. But we're going to be not in the Gospels tonight, but we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a letter that was written by Paul. And before we dig into this, uh, I want to just kind of give you some context, because if you're new to church, or if you're new to faith, or if the Bible is kind of a new thing to you, let me give you some background, because Paul, he, didn't, he actually wasn't born with that name. He was actually born with another name, and that name is Saul. And just as his name was vastly different when he was born, he used to be a vastly different person. Saul was very much a religious person, but he was not a follower of Jesus. Uh, he was a follower of Judaism, and he was a follower of the God of the Old Testament. But when Jesus came around, uh, he did not, and he and Jesus did not get along well. In fact, he kind of showed up after the scene, after Jesus was crucified, buried, dead, and was resurrected, and eventually went up to heaven. But Saul, he's persecuting, he's torturing, he's killing Christians and people of the way. Until one day, he meets the resurrected king, and Jesus knocks him off of his high horse. And as he's kind of befuddled off of the horse, he struck, he struck blind. And it's when he struck blind, he really has nowhere else to look but inside himself. And for three days, he lived with this darkness that he couldn't see, but really it was more the darkness inside of him and the hatred and the jealousy and his sin that was really suffocating to Saul. And it was only until a follower of Jesus actually heard about Saul's predicament and went and laid his hands on him, Saul could see again. And from that fateful day, Saul put his trust in Jesus 
and his name changed from Saul to Paul. And what's so amazing about this is Paul, he is actually starting all kinds of churches all over the world. He starts churches in Phrygia and Pamphylia and Palestine and Greece and Italy and all over Europe in places like Ephesus, Philippi, and Corinth. He loves sharing the good news that Jesus died yet beat death, that Jesus was crucified, and he loved preaching that Jesus is alive. So tonight, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to be starting at verse 1. And it'll be on version. it'll also be on the screens. And Paul wants to remind us of something in verse 1. Here's what he says. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters of the what? The good news that I preached to you before, you welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. By the way, that word good news is the word gospel. It's the Greek word gospel. And that's where we get that, that that there is good news. Now, he is going to explain what that good news is, because we don't want to miss it. In fact, he says this in verse 3, I passed on to you what was most important. Everybody say most important. You see, that's what we're talking about. What is the most important thing when it comes to faith? And you know what? We have talked about a gambit. We've talked about baptism. We've talked about denominations. We've talked about creeds. We've talked about, uh, I mean, we've talked about definition of marriage. We've talked about a lot of these things. But what's going to happen here is Paul is going to whittle all of that stuff down, and he's going to talk about the most important, the center of our faith. That Paul is going to give us the hell that you and I should die on, that we need to hold close-fisted. And here's what it is. I passed on to you what was most important, and what I had also passed on to me, that, look at this, Christ died for our sins, just as the Scriptures said. Next verse. He was buried... That's why, that's why we know he really died. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. Now, I know you probably, even if you're not a church person, you know how this story ends. You know that when Jesus was crucified on Friday, you know that Sundays are coming. But what I want to challenge you to do tonight with the little bit of time that we are hanging out together is I want to erase this last part. I want to take off the resurrecting king. Because at that moment and at that time, the 11 disciples who were still around Jesus were scattered, and they didn't know he was going to rise again. They didn't know that he was going to be resurrected. They just thought the story is done. He's dead. So let's just pretend for a moment that we don't know the rest of the story. And let the finality of death be the period of that sentence. So let's go this. I passed on what was most important to you. And what had been passed on to me that Christ died for our sins. By the way, why did Christ die? For our sins. It says it right there. Accord, just as the scripture said, and he was buried. So what I want to do in just a few moments with you is I want to take a fresh look at what happened on that Friday when Jesus was crucified. That Jesus was being nailed to a cross. Now, 
again, whether or not you're like from a rock or anything like this, let me tell you, we're going to see, and you cannot go into our culture without seeing sculptures and paintings and music all written about Jesus. Whether it's in art, painting, or sculpture, you're just going to see these pictures of Jesus that are painted. Whether it's sculptors who are carving from a rock or painters who are painting a scene, or master musicians like Beethoven, or Bach, or Mozart, or Handel, they compose music about what happened out on a hill just outside of Jerusalem. On a Friday at 9 o'clock in the morning, Jesus was nailed to a cross. All four written accounts by Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John speak of that faithful day. Though leading up to the cross is described in horrific detail from the betrayal of Judas at 1 o'clock in the morning on Friday morning till in the Garden of Gethsemane until he's nailed on a cross just eight hours later. It's jam-packed full with so much stuff. Within those eight hours, six trials happen. And all six of those are illegal. Three were, they, uh, three were religious in nature, and the Jews were trying Jesus. And then three were civil in nature, and Rome was trying Jesus. And we're going to see all throughout this eight hours, just fast-paced until Jesus, he is starting to be nailed to a cross. Now, what's amazing is that Luke 23, 33 doesn't give us a lot of detail. In fact, let me just throw it up on the screen here. It says this. It says, with, look, at, look, look how brief it is. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him. That's it. You see, what happened is there was a hill right outside of Jerusalem that kind of looked like a skull. It's some called it the skull. Another translation is Golgotha. It means the exact same thing. Another translation from another language is called Calvary. It means the exact same thing. It looked like a skull. And there they crucified him. Notice that Luke doesn't give a lot of details. They just crucified him. And the reason why Luke didn't have to give a lot of details is because when he wrote this, at the time when he wrote this, everybody had seen a crucifixion. Everybody had smelt a crucifixion. Everybody had heard a crucifixion. They had heard the wails and the groans and the screams. He didn't need to go into any detail. But for you and me, we've never seen one. We have never experienced what they experienced and saw from a distance. So tonight, let me describe. The cross, or at least the cross beam, was placed on the ground. You see, when Jesus was paraded through the streets, he didn't have the cross beam and the big long thing that went in the ground. He was only carrying the cross beam. And they laid it on the ground. Jesus' arms were stretched out upon it. And can you imagine having to be the one who actually had to take the nails and the hammer and to beat it through his hands? In fact, most people, they think, well, they just put it through his palms. But in the Hebrew, the word palm and hand meant this, but it also meant the wrist. In fact, it was, if you drew, if you put nails through the palms, it's not strong enough, the bones aren't strong enough, and the sinews aren't strong enough for you to be able to hang up on the cross. So they actually put it through his wrist. And they probably secured his arms and wrists first before they went to work putting a nail through both of his feet. 
Roman citizens were beheaded, never crucified. The Roman politician Cicero once said the idea of the cross should never come from the bodies of Roman citizens. For Romans, crucifixion was the cruelest form of capital punishment, reserved for murder, slave revolts, and other heinous crimes against the state. Jews shared of this revulsion because it says in Deuteronomy, anyone who's hung up on a tree or on a piece of wood is cursed. In fact, Jews preferred killing people by stoning. And despite the shame and the sadness of it all, somehow, what took place on that hill called Calvary or Golgotha or the skull is arguably the most important fact in Jesus' life. And it took time for the church to come to terms with the humiliation of the cross. Listen to this. C.S. Lewis said it this way, The crucifixion did not become common in art until all who had seen a real one died off. It wasn't until the 4th century that the cross became the symbol of faith in the church. Now the cross has become the most widely recognized symbol in the world. It adorns more graves, it graces more jewelry, and it's atop more buildings and church buildings than any other design. No corporation, no country has produced such an enduring logo as the cross. Artists beat beat it into the shape of gold, and baseball players, they cross themselves before they get up to bat. And candy confectioners take chocolate and form it as a cross so that you can eat during this time of year. The cross changed from the symbol of human suffering into the exact opposite. A a, a symbol of hope. And after that Friday, the cross would never ever be seen the same again. You see, just as you and I, we think of the electric chair, or we think of a hangman's noose, We would never wear that on a lapel. But after centuries and centuries, what's on our, what do we wear? What do we hang around necklaces? It's the symbol of the crucifixion of the cross. So here's what I want you to do I just want you to listen to the hammering. I'm not trying to be melodramatic, but I want you to picture yourself there. Picture yourself there as you're trying to move through the crowd and the people are angry and people are spitting and others are gambling and it's just cacophony. And you hear the strikes of the hammer going through bone, going through muscle, and eventually finding its spot into wood. Listen to what Isaiah 22 says. Verse 23 says, I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. And what's amazing about that is that word for nail here is the word aman. And it means to make firm. It means to confirm. It means to stand firm, to be enduring, to trust. As horrendous as this pounding hammer is to our spiritual ears, here's what Colossians 2 13 and 14 has to say about the nailing of the cross. It says this. While you were what? You see, let me tell you, some of you think, well, I'm kind of good. I'm all right. No. Without Jesus, we are dead in our sins. 
God then made you alive, how? With Christ. He forgave how many of your sins? All of your sins. And he took it away, nailing it to the cross. The song we sang last week, in fact, we're going to sing it again on Sunday morning. It is well, says it best. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Christ was nailed to the cross. The one perfect human was nailed to the cross. And when God drove his son like a nail into a firm place, he took our sin away. With every pound of that hammer, God was nailing down our salvation. After the soldiers nailed Christ's body to the wood, the cross beams was hoisted up to a timber prepared with an adjoining slot, and it slammed in place, and you could just feel the groaning and the screams as the entire cross was raised with ropes and then dropped as a thud into a socket, securing it upward. Imagine that cross raised over the heads of the people, placing Jesus in full view. Regardless of how many times you've heard this next verse, I want you to pretend like this is for the very first time you've heard it. Because this is the focus and the hill to die on and the center of our faith. Because after it landed in place, Jesus said some faithful words. He said this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I've got to be honest with you. If I was up on that cross, here's what I would say. I would say, Father, consume them. Father, get back at them. Father, I want you to make this right. This isn't right. Father, I want you to go get them. Not Jesus. Jesus said, Father, say it with me, forgive them. This may be the most perfect statement spoken at the most perfect time since God gave us the gift of language. And and unimaginable as his request was, it was so fitting because if the cross is anything at all, it is all about forgiveness. It is all about forgiveness. On Friday, Jesus died for love. He said it was his choice. It wasn't Pilate's choice. It wasn't Herod's choice. It wasn't Caiaphas' choice. It wasn't Caesar's choice. It wasn't the crowd's choice. It wasn't the chief priest's choice. It wasn't the Pharisee's choice. It wasn't the Sanhedrin's choice. It wasn't the Sadducee's choice. It was Jesus' choice. He went to the cross and he said this just a few chapters earlier. He says, I laid down my life for the sins of the world. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to pick it back up again. So the reason why Jesus died was for forgiveness. In fact, if we could go back to verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15 as we close. I pass on to you what was most important. What was most important. That Christ died for our sins. 
I don't know what church background you come from. I don't know what denomination you come from. I don't know if you have any spiritual heritage whatsoever. I don't know what you think of Christians. I don't really care about what you think of the Bible. I don't care if you believe in a literal heaven or a hell. I don't care if you believe the Bible to be true. I'm not going to fight with you about whether or not Jonah actually was in the belly of a fish for three days or three nights. I'm not going to argue with you about creation versus evolution. Because you know what? At the end of the day, none of those matter. This matters. And let me say this. If you're a person and you're kind of kicking the tires of faith and you don't know what to believe, but you can agree on that Christ died for our sins, you and I can worship together. You know, our name is One Church. One of the reasons why that's our name is because we want it to be about one thing, one person, and that is Jesus. If you and I can agree on Jesus, I don't care what you think about anything else. If you and I can agree on Jesus, it doesn't matter about all the other thousands of things because that one person, that one thing, Christ dying for our sins, is the hill that we as the church need to die on. And it's not about who you vote for. It's not about the definition of marriage. It's not about is this wrong or is this right. It is this, simply, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And if that's where you're at tonight, we are getting ready to take communion. Now let me just be very, very clear, because there's some denominations and some churches that just get all wigged out about this. Guess what? This isn't a hill we're going to die on. They say this, that you have to be a part of our denomination or our little club or whatever. And the Bible never ever talks about that when it comes to communion. Here's what it says. It says simply this, that if whenever you take communion, you are to examine yourself. And if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then this is not one church's table. This is the Lord's table. So if you're here and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you may disagree with a thousand other things. That's not the point. The one point that Christ died for our sins. We'll get ready to take communion in a minute. But before I do, I just want to read to you Isaiah 53. I'm not going to make a lot of comments on this. But I want want to remind you that this was written 700 years before Jesus was born. And it was written about one person, Jesus. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows. That Hebrew word for sorrows is called makolba. And it literally sounds like the whole idea of makab. That's exactly what it is. It's horrific. He was a man of sorrows. And acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was for our weaknesses he carried. It was for our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God? A punishment for his own sins? Absolutely not. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed 
for our sins. He was beaten so that you and I could be made whole. He was whipped so that he could be healed. Jesus Christ died on a cross for our sins. Let's remember the sacrifice he gave for us. I'm going to ask you guys right now, the band's getting ready to come out, and uh, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'm going to invite you to come down and grab um, the juice. We got some down here. We got some in the back. So don't feel like you've got to all come down front. But what I want you to do is I want you to grab the cup, and I want you to take it back to your seat, and then I'm going to read some scriptures over us, and we're going to take communion together. Just as a reminder, I want you, us, myself, couple of things we have to remember jesus's death on the cross and if you believe that jesus died on the cross and you have a relationship with him you can participate and even if you have that relationship with god before you do it don't just take it without thinking i want you to spend some time in your seats and i want you to just kind of confess your sins First John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then together, we're going to take the blood and the body together of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you guys to stand up and go ahead and come down front and grab that if you would. Take this time. Talk to God. Don't just jump into this holy moment frivolous. 
just would, go ahead and take out the bread off the top. Let's do that together. Just hold it in your hand. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord Jesus himself. On the night that he was betrayed, Thursday night, the Lord Jesus, he took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Before we take communion, I just want you to talk to Jesus privately to yourself and I want you to give thanks. Give thanks for the sacrifice that Jesus made that Friday 2,000 years ago. As he's hanging on the cross. Thank Jesus right now. Then he broke it into pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Eat this to remember me. Go ahead and open up the cup. We're getting ready to take this together. As you look down... I want you to just let your mind drift to Jesus' sacrifice and the blood that was spilt, not for his sins, for he was sinless, but for our sins. He said this, in the same way, he took the cup of wine at the supper and he said this, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement Confirmed with my blood. Drink this to remember me. Let's drink. Heavenly Father, Lord, so many times we as churches and we are as Christ followers. We're known for what we're against rather than who we're for. And God, I pray, I pray right now, Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would allow us to keep the center of our faith, to keep the, to keep the main thing the main thing, and that one thing is Jesus, who died for our sins, was buried, and just as we're going to celebrate in a couple of days, that Jesus beat death. Lord, I pray that we don't skip over too quickly the pain of that Friday. Lord, it cost you so much. And so many times we approach you and it cost us nothing. Lord, I pray that we would see that it is all about Jesus. 
is Jesus. It's in your name that we pray.